I don't know if he likes me or if he doesn't like me, but he is one hell of a competitor. He is a tough, smart guy. And, and he has got an amazing future. He's got an amazing future. So I want to congratulate Ron and Anian. It seems that some of these cars just want to be discussed. I think the cars are as, as, as big a ham as I am sometimes. Car Doctor, a 16-year-old car still needed to have a software update. That's how important software and flash files are and will be going forward. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the Car Doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, come on in, sit down. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor at your service. The phone number is always 855-560-9900. That is the Car Doctor 24-7 hotline, 855-560-9900. Call, leave a message if we're not here. This radio show is live on the network 2 to 4 p.m. Saturday afternoons Eastern Time. And as many of you know, we, uh, well, we podcast, but we also make it available through the affiliates at various times over the course of the weekend. So 855-560-9900 has a 24-7 messaging service. You can call that phone number and leave a message if we're not on the air. And Fast Harry, our executive producer, will call you back, talk to you about your problem, and put you in the lineup for the following week. And that's really what we like to do. I know some of you are hesitant to come up here on air. Trust me, I've been doing it a while. It's not terrible. And we'll make it really nice and easy for you. And um, just talk to you about your car problem. And the nice thing is if we get to talk to you on air and uh, give you some knowledge and, and help you with information, that helps somebody else. And that's what this radio show is all about. We're just trying to help people and fix as many cars as we possibly can. More information about this radio show at cardoctorshow.com, as well as links there for various ways to podcast. We have podcasts available at cardoctorshow.com. But as I always say, you can also get the links for TuneIn, iHeart, iTunes.com. You can obviously subscribe to some of those and take it that way. And coming soon to you on Google, I believe it's Google Play, we'll be having Car Doctor podcasts as well. I think they might have even released. Uh, I think that was supposed to be the first week of May, which obviously this is. So um, that should be, uh, that's probably a live event now too, so you can podcast us that way. I want to talk to you about and we've had this conversation, you and I, about a house with an asphalt roof, you know, regular shingles, and a copper roof. And if you recall this conversation, it's all about the degree of difficulty to repair. And the analogy is always drawn to when you buy a car, is it something you buy, do you buy a simple car, which is kind of hard to do today, or do you buy something even more complicated than the typical complicated car? I want to tell you the story about the shingle roof and the copper roof in regards to this 2008 Nissan Altima Hybrid. Nissan Altima Hybrid is it's kind of a neat vehicle. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's actually a, a, a first-generation Toyota Prius in Nissan clothing in a lot of aspects. And a lot of the components carry over, and they're a swap, and they're, they are 
they are pretty much the same. Had the occasion this week to fall into a repair where the anti-lock brake controller assembly was bad on this 2008 Altima Hybrid. And it's it's really kind of a, I don't know any other way to say it, but a scary situation. Here's an 08 Nissan that you look at, 180,000 miles. I don't want to gloss over that too quick. And the electronic anti-lock brake controller was bad. Now understand, this car has three basic braking systems. It has the anti-lock brake controller. It has a master cylinder that operates the rear brakes by means of, you know, it's it's a manual master cylinder, not power, but it's a master cylinder that is the safety, that is the fail-safe if the electronic anti-lock brake controller fails. And then it has TSM. TSM is trees, shrubs, and mailboxes because when the master fails after the anti-lock brake controller stops working, you're going to have to hit one of the three in order to get the car to slow down. This particular Altima, this copper-roofed vehicle, needed a controller. The controller was $1,700, close to eighteen, And it's not a simple bolt-in. It's not something that, you know, in 20 minutes you're done. And the bleed procedure takes upwards of two hours. There are some very specific things that have to be done. The total cost for the repair on this 180-something-thousand-mile vehicle was encroaching three grand by the time you put sales tax in it. And you look at that and you say, why? Is it really necessary? I always think about that, that that expression, is this trip really necessary? Is this repair really necessary? Is this car really necessary? What were the engineers thinking? And the answer is I'm not sure because as much as everyone's a fan of hybrids and they're all thrilled, ooh, I'm driving a hybrid, I'm saving the planet, are you? And I keep coming back to those reports that talk about the cost to manufacture, produce, and maintain a hybrid are near equal to that of the gas engines. And in some cases that's true, and in some cases it's not. But a comparable repair on a non-hybrid Ultima is half that $3,000. And a lot of it has to do because of the electronics that are on board for the hybrid to operate. So at what cost do we make that hybrid work? Listen to the description. Here's the description for how the brakes work on this 08 Ultima Hybrid. The system detects the degree of brake pedal operation with a brake stroke sensor and two master cylinder pressure sensors and then calculates the optimum hydraulic brake force. So in other words, sensors in a computer determine how hard to put the brake on. The hydraulic pressure source, which is the anti-lock brake controller, is adjusted based on this so that optimum hydraulic control is independently performed on all four wheels. Meanwhile, the electronic control brake system also performs control of the normal brakes, ABS traction control, in accordance with the operations of the driver. So there is some driver input. Here's the best part. There's a hydraulic backup mechanism. This is a fancy way of saying just a manual master cylinder that applies master cylinder pressure generated by human power. So somewhere along the way, they acknowledge human beings are involved in this, to the wheel cylinders, which are the rear brakes, when the brake control stopped. So in other words... When your 3,500-pound missile has a brake failure at 60 miles an hour out on the highway, the only thing that you're stopping on is rear brakes, but of the manual nature, not power. And I had a laugh when I read when I read this. You know, 
I wonder how many of you could make that adjustment how quick in your mind because you're you're used to all of a sudden you're used to a power brake, you're you're gently stepping on the brake pedal, and at the moment of a brake failure, dash lights come on, the first thing you're gonna do is hit the brakes. Are you gonna hit them hard enough? Are you is is your mind gonna be in a panic situation where you're capable of stepping on the brake hard enough? And the answer is, I don't know. But the backup mechanism applies master cylinder pressure generated by human power of the wheel cylinder when the brake control stops. In addition, as a fail-safe mechanism, when the brake control malfunctions, the system excludes the malfunctioning sections and continues to perform brake control in the normal parts. A power brake backup unit is also used to ensure a stable supply of power to the system. And then, like I said, the, the, the third method of stopping the car is TSM, trees, shrubs, and mailboxes. And you've really got to look at this and say, what are we creating? There was a lot of, oh, I don't know, hubbub, uproar in the news a couple of years back over the Toyota unintended acceleration issue. And my answer to it was, I've been in cars where the gas pedal is stuck, where the floor mat's gotten jammed up under the pedal. And I'm not here to criticize Toyota. That's not what this is about. But this is about the point that if you're in a vehicle doing 60 and the accelerator sticks, the majority of you, and probably yours truly included, don't have the wherewithal to turn the car off, which to me was the simple solution. Just turn the car off when it's unintended acceleration and, you know, wait for it to stop. But it really comes down to how safe are some of these cars? How safe is that copper-roofed house? When you go from driving something that's normal and reliable and you know what to expect. And then again, do you know what to expect? Do any of you ever put your vehicle in an emergency situation? Because the bottom line becomes that going forward with technology, you've got to be ready for that problem to expect the unexpected. Because if one thing technology has shown us, it's brought forward change and the unexpected. So think about that the next time you're buying a car. Do you want a car with... Simple, easy-to-do brakes, simple, easy-to-do repairs, or is that expensive high-line vehicle with that fancy propulsion system really something that you want to do and deal with on a regular basis? By the way, the part was on back order for this 08 Ultima. The vehicle owner had to wait six days in order to get them, and here's a car that's just barely eight years old. So can you imagine another couple of years with this technological pile of chips is going to become in terms of trying to repair it and getting parts. 855-560-9900. I'm Ron Anany and the Car Doctor here to take your calls. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Ron Anini and the Car Doctor rolling along at 855-560-9900. This just in, I sort of feel like Walter Cronkite with a little dee 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 Ron, help, help. That's why I mean it's sort of like a Walter Cronkite moment. I'm the TV guy that used to have the old 1977 Chevy wagon, but for the past two years, 
I have a 1997 Lexus ES350. I need your help desperately. My left front caliper's piston. Isn't it funny? I opened the show talking about problems with brakes, and we're going to go a completely 180 degrees different and talk about brake calipers and master cylinders on older Lexuses. My left front caliper piston went bad leaking, and the brake fluid had leaked out of the master. I changed the caliper, but I am having a difficult time in bleeding the system. According to the Lexus manual, they say if the master cylinder becomes empty, which it did, the master cylinder has to be bled first before the wheels. They say to loosen the brake lines at the master, slowly depress the pedal, and hold it. Block the ports on the master with your finger, then release the brake pedal. They say to do this three or four times. Well, yeah, uh, Greg, I mean, that's true. The problem is you need an assistant to do it that way, and it, it's also quite messy. So what we typically do is we would stuff some rags under the area of the master. If we're going to bleed the master on the vehicle, have someone stroke the pedal down with the bleed, with the lines open, close the line, and repeat that process a couple of times until we see no more air coming out. Now, just for conversation's sake, and this isn't your problem, but I just want to point this out. If you were changing this master, I bleed my masters on the bench. And, you know, the age-old fingers over the ports, and I wear my rubber gloves, fingers over the ports, and stroke the piston one at a time, and I not necessarily try to get full stroke on the master's piston, but just enough until the bubbles kind of burp up out of the transfer ports at the top. So you, you can watch them on a lot of these masters because it's clear plastic, it's open areas. And when all those bubbles come out, that's that much less bleeding that you will have to do when the vehicle, when the master cylinder's back on the vehicle. Now, in your case, you can do it by taking the lines completely off and blocking the ports with your fingers, or you can crack the lines loose you know, open on downstroke, close on upstroke. The way I install a master is, and if you do this right, you'll never even have to bleed the system. You bench bleed the master, put it on the vehicle, change it over, and if you catch it right, you will bleed it just like that on the vehicle. And what happens is when you go on the upstroke, you're pulling the air, whatever little bit of air went into the lines, back into the master area, and eventually it burps out up through the top. You do that a couple of times, you'll never have to bleed the system. Just a tip, just a thought of being careful and um, uh, surgical with your brake fluid if you want to think of it like that so you don't have fluid all over the place. I don't like making a mess. Making a mess means I've got to clean it up. Putting down any kind of speedy dry or any kind of rags means I've got to clean those up, means I've got to use up resources. Never a good thing. You continue in your email, Greg. This is impossible since when you loosen the brake lines, the fluid runs out, right? We established that before you can even get your finger on the ports. Also, it's a very tight space. The flared brake line on the side by the fender is very solid and doesn't pull out easily. Is there a better and easier way or method to bleed the system on that car in order to get a pedal? I'm by myself with no assistant. I tried to bleed the system at the rear wheels first using your method with the Snapple bottle and hose. No luck before I even touched the master. When I opened the bleeder at the far right rear wheel, very little fluid came out, and I have no pedal. First thing I would do, and you continue, but before we go along those lines, first thing I would do is I'd be bleeding the left front simply because it's the closest to the master, and if I'm looking to push air out of the system, I want to just get air out. I'm not worried about a good pedal at this point. I'm just trying to get air out of the master. If you really have no helper, you know, the idea of the Snapple bottle, and for those that may not be familiar, we've 
done it this way for a long time, and I'm sure I didn't invent this, but we used big plastic cups, the big gulp cup, the, the Burger King cup, whatever it is from the fast food place, and I will take a binder clip, use the binder clip to hold the hose to the cup, and put a, a long coil of rubber hose down into the brake fluid and fill it up until it's just, oh, maybe a, a quarter of an inch, three-eighths of an inch over the top of the over the top of the end of the hose. And then with the bleeder open, I will slowly stroke down and lift up and stroke down and lift up. The, the, the nice thing about this is if you do this correctly and you've got a good tight fit on the bleeder and the bleeder threads to the brake caliper are a good fit. And if they're not, what you can do is take the bleeder screw out all the way, put a dab of yellow grease or wheel bearing grease on the threads and they will help seal the thread so that they do not leak or seep. And doing it this way will allow a good, sharp, positive feel. The problem you've got yourself in, Greg, is doing the caliper without having an assistant available to you kind of puts you in a predicament. So I'm not going to you know, say, hey, listen, next time, I think by now you know better about you don't put yourself in a box. One of the things I always teach everybody whenever we're doing an oil change the first thing I teach somebody on an oil change, not to loosen the drain plug, not to take the filter down, not to put the car up in the air. The first thing, make sure the hood opens. Because if it's a car you don't know, or maybe it's a car you know, and the last thing in the world you want is you go to change the oil, and the hood release doesn't work. And, yeah, it's happened. And we've caught it early where we're not stuck in a jam and we're in the box. What I think you need to do is... Consider doing the bleeder bottle the way I've described it. Maybe picking up a brake syringe. If you Google brake syringe, we found them now. We were talking about this a couple of months back. They are out on the web now, cheaper than I originally thought and easier to get. Matter of fact, they're on the Car Doctor Facebook page. I think we had this conversation. And if you scroll down a couple of pages back, it's up there. Um, I think it was available on Amazon, pretty cheap. Uh, brake, brake bleeder syringes will help you immensely in a situation like this. And last but not least, if you're going to work on the car by yourself, consider doing something like the Mighty Vac kit, the Mighty Vac handheld kit with the brake bleeder cup attachment. You know, 100 bucks or less, I think it is, for a nice kit, and will allow you to bleed the system as a one-man bleeder. That's specifically what it's designed for. But um, give those things a call, Greg. I'm sorry I couldn't be more help. Uh, you need an assistant, buddy, if that doesn't work. And um, I think you'll be good from there. I appreciate it. I hope that helped. I kind of came in as an emergency uh, emergency email. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. We will kick the garage doors open when I return. Stay tuned. We're back right after this. Hey, welcome back. Ron Anini and the Car Doctor rolling along at this 855-560-9900, the Car Doctor's 24-7 number. Podcast of this radio show at cardoctorshow.com. Don't forget, get out to Facebook. I haven't mentioned that in a while, but get out to Facebook. Like the Car Doctor page. Like the page. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor. Ask a question and win a Car Doctor t-shirt. And we're going to be giving away a Car Doctor t-shirt coming up. Uh, I believe not this segment, next segment, as we have our Facebook winner uh, all lined up in queue. But right now, let's get over and talk to James in Louisiana with some questions about an 89 Suburban and uh, problems with the alternator. James, you're on with the car doctor. How can I help? Yes, uh, Harry, I have a 1989 1500 series uh, Suburban, uh, 5.7 liter. Okay. And um, 
I've got a problem with my alternator. It doesn't seem to charge the battery when I have the battery terminal wire attached. But if I take the and it when it is attached, the car runs very rough, has no power, and I can't keep it idling at a stop sign. I have to keep uh, gradually attaching the accelerator to keep it going. And I'm wondering if I have an open between the battery terminal uh, and the uh, battery. And I was hoping that someone might be able to help me. Okay. Here's here's what I think is going on, James. In that, and let me just repeat that for everyone because the, the phone broke up a little bit. So you've got an 89 Suburban with a 5.7 liter. It's a rear-wheel drive. And the issue is it's got a rough idle. It runs rough. You have to keep your foot on the accelerator pedal to keep it running at idle. Otherwise, it might stall. And if you disconnect the alternator heavy battery wire, the car runs okay, but obviously it's not charging. Is that a correct statement? That's that's correct. Thanks. Okay. So what I believe here is now, have you changed the alternator? What sort of work's been done to it to this point? Oh, I've had a lot of work done to it. Uh, new distributor, new uh, cap, uh, rotor, condensers. Okay. And replaced one throttle body injector, and the other one cleaned thoroughly, and several other things. Uh, they swapped out the alternator about five times, thinking they may have had a bad alternator okay was the was the problem always there in other words before all this work was done did it have the rough idle in the surge well i had it laid up and the last time i took it out and drove it it was coughing and cutting and then it just plumb stopped and i waited a few minutes to start it back up finally got it back home and uh Come to find out, I had a bad fuel pump. Replace that. The uh, fuel filter uh, and a number of other things that uh, were done to it, but okay. we still can't get the alternator problem straight. Okay, let me just let me just comment a little bit, if I can, James, and then I'll give you the answer. Okay. The, the fact that it sat for a length of time, and you had a fuel pump issue. I just want to make sure that both of us realize that there's a possibility as a secondary problem that I just want to know that the inside of the gas tank was looked at and that the tank is clean and the fuel is clean so that we're feeding. Yeah, they, the, yeah. okay. They uh, drained the tank and cleaned it and put a new filter in there, I mean a new uh, fuel pump and replaced the filter. And it still would wouldn't uh, act right. Okay. So with with that being said, as long as I know I've got a good fuel supply, the next thing I want to do because I like to, I like to do the simple things first, and I just cover the okay. basics and you know lay the groundwork so to speak. Is, okay. Is my my next step? I would like to know. Obviously, do I have battery voltage at that heavy battery wire going to the alternator? There's going to be a heavy wire, the battery stud. It, a two-wire plug-in, I believe, in 89 for the back of the alternator 
One's going to be red, and the other one's going to be brown or white. The red is going to be battery voltage key on coming through the gauge fuse. And I just I just want to know that I've got hot where I'm supposed to have hot, and the fuse is okay. And I'm sure it is. I just, like I said, I just want to cover the basics. Knowing that the yeah. charging system with a good alternator that's been changed five times, as you say, it would work, all right? And, of course, there's a possibility. Let me just ask for the conversation. Um, what brand alternator? Uh, something local, something the mechanics worked with before. He, he has faith in it that it's not the part itself. Yes, it's brand new, and uh, they got it from one of his uh, part suppliers. Uh, They've got a good track record with that brand. Yes. Okay. And and the only reason I say that is because I don't care whether it's new or, or, or 10 years old. New means never, ever worked. 10 years old means I still want to understand where it came from. So I, I trust nothing. I've learned that. I've got stories about some Delco ignition parts from two weeks ago that would turn everybody's hair gray. So that being said, the next step, tell your mechanic to check the resistance value of both injectors. I don't care that the one is new. I want to know what the resistance value is. These cars were very susceptible to, and this is a throttle body, correct? There are two injectors on this yes. vehicle? Right. It's they, a throttle body. Right. They were, they were very susceptible to bad injectors. High resistance would drive the onboard computer crazy. All right? And in some cases, actually damaged the ECM. Mm. All right. So it's a simple yeah. it's a simple test. Unplug both injectors at the top of the throttle body. And I always I always in this case, these were a little fussier than the port fuel motors. I would always short my leads together, my own meter leads together and see what the resistance value is and calculate that into the measurement because you should see one point two to two ohms of resistance at a room temperature of about 68 to 70 degrees. Okay. All right. And All right. I, I, I've got a feeling you're going to find that one of those or both of those is out of that range. And and the other way to do it is if they both read normal, get the engine get the engine warmed up. When it's warmed up, shut it off, measure the resistance. They should both be pretty close to each other. If one of them is way out of range, and then I've got mm-hmm. to start to think we've got a problem with that injector. All right, because what I think yeah. going, what I think is going on here. Back in the day, the problems we used to have were the injectors would put electrical spikes out, and that would get filtered all the way back to the PCM or the ECM, is what it was called in the day, and it actually would cause the vehicle to run rough and, in some cases, shut it down. That, in combination yeah. with the alternator, would start to fight with the in the electrical of the circuits of the vehicle. In the electrical in the electrical circuits of the vehicle. Okay. All right, sir. But that's where I would go next. I'd want to know what the resistance value is of those two injectors and make sure it's correct. One point two to two ohms was what General Motors called for back in nineteen eighty nine. All right, I'll tell him. All right, you tell him that and you give me a call back if you need help, I'm here for you. Okay, well certainly thank you. You're very welcome, sir. You have a good rest of the day. Very important that we look at some specific things in a situation like that. And while I understand they've they've changed parts and why, I want to know why. And I understand new doesn't mean good. 
Um, you know, it, we're we're always in that situation too, where you've got to fix what you know is bad. Uh, Monday, well, actually, it started yesterday, Friday, and 2004 Saturn View was in my bay for a cooling fan that didn't work. Actually, it worked all the time. It didn't. It never shut off. And they had done a thermostat. There were a couple of codes for cooling system being inefficient. Long story short, the only thing I found wrong with it was the low speed, the drop resistor for the low speed side of the fan assembly is open. Do I know that's going to make the high speed fan run all the time? I'm thinking yes, because I'm thinking the logic from Saturn, they used a feedback system to monitor if the fan, if the low speed fan was working, if the low speed fan's not working. It's going to create a problem and cause that fan to run all the time. I'll find out Monday because the low speed. I found a low speed dropping resistor through Delco, and uh, we'll install that. But my point is, fix what you know is bad. Go on from there. Eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. Running in the car doctor. Coming up next, our Facebook T-shirt winner of the week. Stay tuned. The Car Doctor, happy to be here with you. 855-560-9900 is the phone number. Give us a call. Keep in mind that is 24-7. Give us a call. Leave a message if we're not on the air. And Fast Harry, our executive producer, will call you back and get you in the lineup for the following week, and we can talk to you about your car problem and fix it for you. Because That's what this radio show is about. Speaking of Fast Harry, is Harry out there somewhere? Harry. I'm right here. Hey, bro. Um, it's uh, time for the Facebook T-shirt winner of the hour this week. Okay, let me read you the question, Ron. Read, read now, me the question, F.H. Now, this is from Kevin Flood. Kevin is a longtime listener, and he's in England. Right, yeah, right? sure. Yeah. So here's his question. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, Ron. Here's a question for you. I have a 1929 Model A Sport Coupe that I imported to the U.K. a few years back, and my question is around oil. As you know, this car is a Babbitt-bearing non-oil filter lubrication system. I removed the oil pan a while back and cleaned out the years of sludge left from a combination of non-detergent oil and lack of changes over the years. I ran some synthetic 10-way 30 in it for a few days to complete the cleanup, and now I've gone back to straight SAE 40 mineral non-detergent oil. Would it be wise to stay with the 40-weight mineral, or do you think, say, a 10-way 30 synthetic would at least would at least do... Do no. no harm, and perhaps the benefit of the long term. That was a little typo there in his uh, Facebook post. Uh, love the show. Kevin Redding, Berkshire, UK. UK. Well, I'll tell you what. Thanks, Harry. Good job. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. A friend of mine has a, has a Model A, and we, we talk about this all the time. And, uh, you know, Hick tells me that, and during the course of the conversation, he too was concerned about oil. And, you know, how much to put in and, and, and what weight and what viscosity. And we had the whole Pennzoil conversation, and I made him get out to Pennzoil Synthetics, PennzoilSynthetics.com, and read all about their synthetics and how their synthetics do help clean, because they th- that is a plus. But in the end, in a Babbitt-style bearing of something of this age, think about what we're talking about. We're talking about an engine that's been around close to 90 years. It survived on such a variety of oils and such a variety of owners 
I'm sure the care and, and, and expertise level given it sometimes weren't great. And it still managed to get here. Look at the design and the technology. Look at how good it was. Uh, my concern with going to a multivisc in something like this, Kevin, and, and what I said to Mike, um, my friend with the A, is that it's a Babbitt style. And you, you worry about viscosity. You worry about um, putting something in there too thin, you know, trying to add technology to where a place where technology may not do any good. And as far as cleaning the oil, you know, using word about the synthetic and how clean, because it will, Penn's oil synthetic will help clean up the engine. Uh, you know, the fact is you're going to change the oil so often now because you're trying to take care of it, you're going to baby it, that I don't know that, you know, sludge is going to become an issue. So if it were me, I would probably stay with the SAE40 mineral non-detergent oil. And if you wanted to run a little synthetic through it once in a while to help clean up whatever sludge might be forming or whatever sludge you might think come out, that's good, too. You know, we ran this past one of our engine builders that we know a couple of years back, and his conversation, his comment was, why would you take the sludge out? It's probably what's keeping the engine quiet because it's running on the sludge, and that's what's uh, helping the engine survive all these years. So uh, stay with the SAE40. Use the synthetic if you want as a cleaner on an occasional basis. You can read all about Pennzoil Synthetics at PennzoilSynthetics.com and draw your own conclusions, but Hickey's still running his heavyweight one viscosity oil, and uh, he's doing it the same way where he runs a Pennzoil synthetic through it on an occasional basis, and that seems to do the job for him. I'm sure it will for you. Hey, Kevin, I appreciate the call, and I appreciate you going through the effort to take the podcast and listen in on the show from good old England, and uh, we're going to be sending a Car Doctor t-shirt your way. Just please send me an email, ron at cardoctorshow.com with your name and address, and uh, we'll kind of go from there. And for everyone else, if you want one, like the page, like the Ron and Andy in the Car Doctor page. Send us a question. 855-560-9900. We'll be back right after this. Doctor, another hour flew by. Listen, quick piece of email. Ron, this comes to us from Bob. Uh, a friend of mine wants the best ceramic pads and rotors for his 09 Dodge Ram 1500 pickup. Do you have any brand recommendations? Are there any made in the good old USA anymore? You know, Bob, I don't think anybody's brakes are made in the USA. I think they're, well, I should say it like this. I think some are assembled here, but the components are from overseas. So keeping that in mind, what I would tell you is... Get out to the folks at O'ReillyAuto.com. Take a look at O'Reilly Auto Parts, O'ReillyAuto.com. The nice thing about their website is, and it's real simple, you plug in the vehicle, so you tell them 2009 Dodge Ram 1500, hit brakes, and it will bring up every brake manufacturer they have and give you the choice of what parts you can look at. And from there, you can do your research. It's sort of like a one-stop place you know, one-stop shopping, so to speak, get a list of what parts are available. And then if you have any questions, you can call their 800 number, their toll-free number, and ask them and say, hey, I'm in wherever you are. I think you're up in Vermont. Um, I'm in Vermont. I'm looking for brakes for an 09 Dodge Ram. What's good? What works? And and, and the one thing about O'Reilly Auto Parts that sets them apart from the others, and I've said this to their competitors and they don't seem to listen, is that O'Reilly Auto Parts not just cares – 
but they're parts people. They get it. They're not just there to sell you something. They're there to sell you something that works. And that's what it's all about. And whether you're young or old, 15 to 50, they talk to you like a person. And that's one of the things I've always liked in my experience in dealing with O'Reilly Auto Parts. So get out to O'ReillyAuto.com, see what they've got, and you can uh, kind of make a decision from there, as well as call their 800 toll-free number. I'm Ron Anini in The Car Doctor. I want to thank you for stopping by this hour. Until the next time, the mechanics aren't expensive, they're priceless.